It's good to see you all again. Preparing the mind before reading or listening to the suttas is so essential. It's such a big and crucial part of the practice. Because we don't listen or read the suttas simply as a way to add more information to apply critical thinking, rational mind working incessantly, or to promote discursive thought. Even though all of these things listed, mentioned, they do come in and they do play a role, of course, but ultimately, As we sit to practice stilling the mind, quieting the mind, in preparation to hear the Dhamma, to receive the Dhamma, it can surprisingly be the condition for us to destroy eons of ignorance and take those shackles off as far as attaining sotapanna shackles off of the lower realms rebirth into those realms or even a stage that is even higher than sotapanna so I know we live in a cynical world where many people even doubt such statements, where we see countless, countless examples within the, the life of the Buddha and his disciples and countless others who came to listen and attain the lofty states of nobility, any of the four simply by listening to the Dhamma. That has a lot to do with the listener and the audacity that one brings in to their present moment by continuing the meditative process. You're still guarding those gates, those exits, as I was mentioning in the beginning with awareness, with sati and sampajanya, to see what's happening. Am I picking up what's coming in? Am I hearing the dhamma? It does happen where people attain stream entry simply by listening to the dhamma. The dhamma that comes straight from the Pali canon, of course. where we still have somewhat of the genuine teachings of Lord Buddha intact. So that is my encouragement as we begin today's sutta.
exploration, which is on the Girimananda Sutta from the Anguttara Nikayas, the numerical discourses uh, from the Book of the Tens. Book of the Tens. And this um, happens to be Sutta number 10.60. And Girimananda is uh, a, a bhikkhu, a venerable Girimananda. And um, and uh, the story basically occurs where Venerable Ananda approaches Lord Buddha, um, informing him that the Venerable Girimananda is gravely sick, is suffering with pain, and he's dealing with illness. So he comes to Lord Buddha as typical of Venerable Ananda to, um, one, to inform Lord Buddha, and two, to uh, kind of uh, persuade Lord Buddha to go and visit him, visit Venerable Girimananda, um, and, um, and then Lord Buddha gives, um, well, the sutta comes right after that. Um, Lord Buddha does not go to Girimananda uh, for whatever reason, uh, but he nevertheless um, gives an instruction, um, a reminder, if you will, to Venerable Ananda in case he knew uh, this, this teaching uh, um, or not, but for the purpose of carrying it to Venerable Girimananda for him to hear, for him to hear and, and listen attentively to the teaching now carried over with the help of Venerable Ananda, who was uh, who had a photographic memory. Um, whatever he heard, whatever he saw, he was very good at, uh, especially when it came to the Dhamma. His memory was impeccable. And that's how we have most of these suttas. It's all because of him, uh, his memory. That's where we have evam me sutang. In the beginning of most or majority of the suttas, we have that in Pali, which means I have personally heard this. Who's, who's I? That's Venerable Ananda talking in the first council when he was asked, he was questioned by the other Arahants um, to be, when they were codifying the suttas, uh, putting them in order. That's how we have, for example, in this case, the Anguttara Nikaya, numerical discourses. So um, just a, a brief side note there. Now, um, as uh, is customary, I'd like to say a few words about the background uh, of, 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 well, who is Venerable Girimananda? Um, we come across a few verses from the Venerable in the Theragata. Theragatas uh, are the, the sayings or the poems of the elder bhikkhus um, arahants. And we also have the Terigata. Uh, the Terigata are the uh, poems or the sayings of the Bhikkhuni Arahants. Um, and it's a, these are two beautiful collections that we have in the Kuddha Nikaya, which are the um, minor sayings or minor discourses. And uh, so there. Um, 
are uh, a few uh, verses um, in two different sections, uh, I think at least two. Um, and um, in one of them, we see how Venerable Girimananda is uh, mentioning how, <laughs> excuse me, how um, in, a, in a long time ago, in, uh, in, in, at the time of uh, Lord Buddha Sumedha, and uh, that was about 30,000 eons ago, and he mentions that, um, where he met the Buddha Sumedha. And he says it in, in such a beautiful a verse, a set of verses where he says, um, he was a layman at that time, and he had just not buried, but taken his uh, wife's body, his mother's body, his father's body, and his brother's bodies to the charnel ground. So all in one day. So we can't even begin to imagine how devastating that can be for a person. So he was completely distraught. And um, I think he, uh, he also had a son and probably he was also, he was in the charnel ground. I, it doesn't say in the verses whether his son was also dead or not, but his entire family in a sense had died on the same day. So he was cremating them all. So at that moment, Lord Buddha Sumedha of that era is alive. So you can imagine how many wonderful punyas or merits he has, uh, Girimananda, in those you know, many, many lifetimes ago. And um, Buddha Sumedha teaches him the Dhamma. So that was the first time that Venerable Girimananda came across the Dhamma. And the Dhamma, remember, is the same. The Buddhas reveal it. They discover it. Perhaps the proper term would be rediscover it because it's completely covered up. But it's there, covered up in people's minds and hearts. Only a Buddha can actually reveal it. And when Lord Buddha Sumedha, being a Buddha, was teaching the Dhamma and comes out of compassion to the uh, charnel grounds to see Girimananda. His name was not Girimananda at the time. Of course, I don't know what his name was. I, I can't remember. Um, and um, he mentions how Lord Buddha Sumedha removed the arrow of grief from his heart. The arrow of grief from his heart with the help, with the medicine of the Dhamma. And uh, I have um, written here um, um, uh, uh, a verse from, um, from that uh, portion of the Theragata where he, where he mentions this encounter. And then Lord Buddha is teaching him about the loss of a mother and a father, teaching him anicca via the loss, the very real experience of having lost one's loved ones, especially one's own parents. And um, the verse here says, 
just as a serpent slithers on, abandoning its worn-out skin. Thus your mother and father, too, their bodies are abandoned here. Just like a serpent slithers, moves, and removes its dead skin, its slew, I think it's called. And there's a new body, a new body, a new body. But this was quite uh, of a revelation for him. And he's moved uh, Girimananda at that time, and he offers Lord Buddha, Sumedha, um, uh, a few stalks of flowers, uh, probably lotuses or whatever he had um, with him as, as an offering. And um, he attains, Ara, uh, no, I'm sorry, he attains Sotapatti, um, stream winning. Um, from that, at the end of the encounter that he had with Lord Buddha, as Lord Buddha Sumedha was teaching him the Dhamma, and um, um, so he was reborn several times after that, um, primarily going from um, uh, dwelling or being uh, reborn in the heavenly realms, also in the human realms. Uh, as some of you know, uh, once a person is a stream winner, the most amount of lifetimes they're going to have is seven. Seven at the most. So apparently he, you know, moves about a little bit in samsara. He's not in a rush, apparently, to attain. Um, until he is reborn in his last birth in the city of Rajagha, where this is uh, the event, uh, basically, um, is taking place. Um, and uh, from the commentaries to the Theragata, we know that he was born in this last life of his, uh, um, uh, being the son of, of the royal court, uh, royal to the king uh, Bimbisara. We know um, also that King Bimbisara was also Sotapanna. He was one of the uh, first Sotapannas in the Buddha's Sasana. So, um, so he was the son of King Bimbisara's royal, uh, you can call it uh, maybe the priest, so uh, like the chaplain um, of the court. So one day um, he is, he hears about Lord Buddha coming to Rajagha and he attends um, a Dhamma talk and is so moved by the teaching uh, received that he goes forth and joins the Sangha of Bhikkhus. And um, he lives in Rajaka, and, um, but most of the time he's actually living outdoors. So there are Dutanga practices. There's a set of 13 Dutanga practices. One of them is to live underneath a tree, uh, Rukkamula, it's called. Um, Rukka tree, Mula means root. Um, and there is the other, which is a, a lot more extreme. Um, uh, practice of Dutanga, and that is living out in the open, meaning even avoiding trees. 
Uh, so you're sitting out outside, not at a shelter, not underneath something or a clearing or even a cave. No, none of that. So you're completely exposed. So the commentators doesn't <coughs> excuse me don't say anything about him having to be doing the dutanga but he was practicing and living outdoors apparently so he didn't have a proper lodging which is one of the key uh, four uh, requisites that we have as bhikkhus so apparently he didn't have that and um one day, uh, as King Bimbisara is going about, uh, well, going to hear Lord Buddha speak, he sees Venerable Girimananda there, and he notices, and, his, his, and he, of course, knows him um, from his childhood, and he sees now that he's a bhikkhu, um, and his ministers tell him that Lord, uh, you know, uh, to the king, um, he doesn't have a dwelling. And um, immediately, King Bimbisara offers his support, and he says, from now on, you, uh, all your requisites are on me. I will take care of that, and you will be provided with a dwelling, suitable dwelling. Unfortunately, being, the king being a king with so many responsibilities completely forgets about that promise. <laughs> so what you have then is uh, you know, the monsoon season is approaching in India, and Venerable Girimananda is left where? Out in the open. And uh, so the devas see this, and they're very upset about this, and they say, well, we can't afford to have Venerable Girimananda be in this predicament, so they <laughs> um, put the pause button on the monsoon season, in a sense. So they put a stop to the rains. And now there is drought in the, in the kingdom of Rajagha. And King Bimbisara realizes the problem and he's inquiring. And then finally they find out as to why. Uh, so the news gets to him that, uh, Lord, you know, you had promised. Perhaps this has something to do with Venerable Girimananda. So he immediately um, uh, uh, takes care of that and has a hermitage built for the venerable um, Girimananda. And um, in case you're wondering, um, as a bhikkhu, we have some very strict rules about going and asking for things from people, even if it's somebody promising us something, a cup of water, a piece of bread or a bowl of rice. Um, we cannot, unless they are related to us, that is, or they are a kapiya or attendant or something like that, or fellow monastics. So you were not going to get Venerable Girimananda going and knocking on the King Bimbisara's door saying, uh, excuse me, you promised me some things here and the weather's changing. Uh, hello. That was never going to happen. So that's why the devas interceded, and, and, and uh, fortunately, he was provided with um, the appropriate requisites. So anyhow, that, that's part of the uh, background story. And um, at this point, of course, he has his hermitage, and he is ill. Um, and Venerable Ananda is mentioning this, uh, bringing this to Lord Buddha's attention. So let's begin. Oh. <laughs>
<clears throat> at one time, uh, when the Blessed One was living in the monastery offered by Anatta Pindika at Jeta's Grove in the city of Savati, the Venerable Giri Mahananda was gravely ill, experiencing much suffering. Uh, Venerable Giri Mahananda was in Rajika, meanwhile, while uh, Lord Buddha and Venerable Ananda were in Savati. It was on that occasion when Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and after paying homage to him, came and sat to one side and said to the Blessed One, Bhante, Venerable Girimananda is gravely ill, experiencing much suffering. Now it would be good if the Blessed One would go to him out of compassion. Ananda, if you remind the bhikkhu Girimananda of these ten perceptions, then on hearing these ten perceptions, it is possible that Girimananda bhikkhu's illness would immediately dissipate. And what, Ananda, are these ten perceptions? Um, by the way, the, the word perception, uh, here I chose to use uh, perception because um, uh, the word in Pali that is used here is also the same as we normally see for perception or memories, which is sanya. Uh, however, it, uh, the, the term in English principle uh, would work uh, perhaps a little bit better in hindsight, um, because there is a distinction. This is not the perception that we see, let's say, as part of the five aggregates. That's not, it's not the same, even though in Pali, it's the same word that is being used. So please bear that in mind. So here, perception is not something to do with um, memories as such, or purely as that. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so uh, what are the 10 perceptions? The perception of impermanence, the perception of the non-substantiality of a self. The perception of repulsiveness, the perception of danger, the perception of abandoning, the perception of dispassion, the perception of cessation, the perception of disenchantment towards all things belonging to the world, the perception of the impermanence of all habitual tendencies, and mindfulness of the in and out breathing. So, here again with the word uh, perception, uh, what we are after is basically um, uh, a, a cognitive process that needs to be involved um, in the person um, training their mind and um, applying whatever tools they have, whatever Dhamma they know, in the context of sitting down and engaging the mind, yes, but at the same time applying their observational skills, uh, yes, with the help of cognition, but minus the verbal uh, jargon, minus the um, mental verbalizations um, or discursive thinking that may ensue, that's one of the reasons why I mentioned in the beginning, it's not a matter of um, just using logic and things like that. Um, because proper understanding has a lot to do with 
seeing what is happening at that moment within the mind itself. So you're applying, you're using the mind to know the mind. So in that sense, cognitive process, um, while at the same time guiding one's own uh, behaviors and, and, and mental attitudes, if you will. So it's very engaging. It's not a heady, uh, it's not a heady affair, this word perception uh, here as it's being used. So um, in essence, you're basically doing uh, trench warfare or combat, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, if you will, with um, delusion, delusion, um, which especially plagues the person who is going through physical ailments. Uh, we cannot just um, brush off uh, illness, physical illnesses um, um, and say, well, they're not as important, so I'm, I'm just attached to them. No, they do have a significance on the quality of the mind. And for that reason, we need to inculcate within us, uh, reignite within us uh, the principles of Dhamma. And that is what we see Lord Buddha is, is, is giving um, to Venerable Ananda to go and, and, and share that. Um, those rather with Venerable Gidimananda because this requires serious mind training which forces the person to pull themselves out of being enamored or completely lost in the feeling of the sickness the weakness that, that follows um, being uh, physically ill often so you're basically applying vipassana on a very engaged and consistent manner you're not leaving any room for um which is unwise reflection or unwise uh, attention so and what ananda is the perception of impermanence here, Ananda, the bhikkhu, having <coughs> excuse me, gone to the forest, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, reflects while being secluded from everyone. All forms are impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. Memories and thoughts are impermanent. Habitual tendencies are impermanent. And sense awareness is impermanent. In this manner, he sees impermanence in all things associated with the five grasping aggregates. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of impermanence. Um, so now we're talking about the five aggregates, the five um, aggregates that um, always need to be reflected upon. Um, and in, in order for us to do that, uh, obviously, we're applying Chittanupassana and especially Dhammanupassana, uh, the contemplation of uh, mind states or the investigation, uh, whether it's Dhammavichaya or just um, Sati and Sampajanya, they're all the same thing, ultimately. Um, but when a person is going to the forest, as Lord Buddha is encouraging, 
the listener or to a secluded environment, uh, a dwelling that's, that's far removed from society or companions, um, as they are engaging with the breath or the sensations of the body or any mental uh, meditation object, you're getting a front row seat to witnessing and observing, a chance to observe, rather, a chance to observe all the mechanisms that are taking place in the mind. To see if you can actually identify where the glitch or glitches happen, where the sense of identification kicks in. And that's one of the reasons why the bhikkhu or the person is removing oneself from the world for that duration of time. And that's another reason why in the book of the fives, in this, yeah, the book of the fives, Lord Buddha mentions how um, as the person is getting closer and closer to experiencing Magga Palanibbana, um, there are several things that slowly drop off and drop out of one's life. They don't hold much sway on, on the person's um, mind. And one of them is the seeking of companionship. That's a natural um, consequence, if you will, but a necessary condition for Magga Pala and Nibbana to occur as well. Uh, and so that's, that's another uh, connection we see why we see so many suttas and um, different paragraphs within the same sutta, like in this case, where Lord Buddha continuously comes back to having secluded, having secluded, having secluded oneself, etc. So please there, uh, bear that in mind. And um, because the meditator ultimately is looking at the sensory impingements that occur with the six sense doors, all the data that's coming in, and especially our relationship to each of these. Remember the identification I mentioned? Because the identification happens in relation to whatever uh, and however the world is being carried through via these six sense doors. The head of which actually is the mind, which we neglect to consider. Uh, the mind is the big one. Our concepts, our thoughts. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, we can see how they all trickle down to come to a, a, a still point, I guess, or the singular, singular point of, of uh, tanha, craving. That's their meeting point. When the, lo uh, the, the loka or the world is coming through the six sense doors, ultimately the drainage hole is tanha, if you will, is craving. Seeing how things come to be, however, which is the goal of meditation, in Pali it's yatabu tangpajanati, Lord Buddha repeats again and again is to see really what is taking place and to identify this whole process, which cannot be seen at all without wisdom. 
And as we've talked about many, many times, wisdom cannot take place without the presence of sati. So it's not just a mantra we repeat, sati and sampajanya, sati, sati, mindfulness. No, there's a purpose. We need to find out, we need to identify this personalization filter that we use all the time. Every time we, um, well, well, every moment of our lives, really. And that's why we're always checking up on the six sense doors. What is my relationship to you, eyes? What is my relationship to you, body? And what you're picking up. So, continuing on. And what ananda is the perception of the non-substantiality of a self? Here, ananda. <laughs> the bhikkhu, having gone to the forest, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, reflects while being secluded from everyone. When the eye experiences visible objects, there is no such thing as a substantial self that is seeing the object. Please, uh, if you can, just, just try to, I'm gonna reread re this because it's, it's such a powerful statement we're, we're hearing from Lord Buddha. When the eye experiences visible objects, there is no such thing as a substantial self that is seeing the object. When the ear experiences audible sounds, there is no such thing as a substantial self that is hearing the sound. When the nose experiences odors, there is no such thing as a substantial self that is smelling the odor. When the tongue experiences flavors, there is no such thing as a substantial self that is tasting the flavor. When the body experiences touches and tactile objects, there is no such thing as a substantial self that is touching these tactile objects. When the mind experiences mental objects and ideas, <coughs> there is no such thing as a substantial self that is cognizing these thoughts and ideas. In this manner, he sees the non-substantiality of a self in all interactions taking place between the six internal and six external sense bases. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of the non-substantiality of a self. Several months ago, um, we had, well, last year, uh, I can't remember, we talked about Bahya Sutta, and Lord Buddha was giving the instruction to Bahia, saying, when seeing Bahia, just see. The object, the form is there, visible form, and the eyes are here. The media, and they're functioning eyes. And you have the conditions, the, the lighting and everything else is there. So it's very conducive for these to meet. With this meeting, we have the eye consciousness or the sense awareness of uh, eyesight taking place. Chakkuvinyana, it's called in Pali. So you have now a three-part uh, uh, mechanism, organic flow that's happening. But nowhere do we see a self, a separate uh, um, compartmentalized entity 
who's responsible for this process taking place. Just the seeing is taking place. And this is what the mind has, uh, an unliberated mind has a tough time grasping or understanding. And this is obviously taking us back to dittimana, the conceit of views of I am, asmimana, I am this. This is who I am. The image that you can think of here is that of a camera or a mirror. A mirror, which simply reflects, that's it. It's even detached from what it is seeing, isn't it? There's absolutely no residual, <laughs> excuse me, um, sense of clinging, effect of clinging left behind on the mirror. Nor in being attached to the trail of Oh, yes, as you walk away from the mirror, the mirror doesn't sit there and write a poem or poetry on, oh, how well it was while you were standing in front of me. So there isn't a trail of leftover thoughts or emotions as a result of the mirror having reflected what was in front of it. And there isn't a longing that the mirror might have for us to repeat that whole experience. But that's exactly the opposite of what we normally do. Hence, dukkha. Because we want to have a trail of memories attached to it. We add details, features, signs, to that experience, to add more significance, more clout, more dimensionality, more shadow, more, sh more, more, more things, so that it becomes a quote-unquote fuller experience for us. And of course, we want to repeat the whole thing, if that is, it was a pleasant experience. And of course, in some traumatic cases or abuse cases, the mind might actually extract some form of enjoyment and pleasure out of the painful experiences. But essentially, it is still in that, underneath that umbrella of terms, that also is pleasure for that person at that time, despite the fact that it produces pain. And that is another way of looking at pain and pleasure as both leading to the same thing, <coughs> excuse me, which is, which is dukkha. Dukkha. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to free ourselves from. So the mirror is never going to have mental proliferations, papanchas. We, on the other hand, are full of them. Because of this personalization filter that I was trying to mention in the beginning. Personalizing. Oh, I'm seeing this. This is special. I'm hearing this. This is significant for me now this versus just seeing what the eyes are picking up and that is how uh, uh, an arahant does not make new kamma new kamma because 
they pick up only to let go, to give up. There's nothing that they're holding on to. They're, they're very much like the mirror in this case. So there is a neutral observation that is taking place. That's what's happening in the mind. Because the person is now able, or putting the effort to at least, to see what is arising and what is vanishing at all, uh, all the time. So this is the reason why we have uh, slowly, slowly, the high highs and the low lows diminish until they come to a point of neutrality because they disappear. And that's another reason why I, I constantly urge you to not just treat meditation as a sitting practice per se, only. That means while you're tossing and turning in bed, where's your mind? Do you have any specific desires at that moment of perhaps falling asleep because you have to, you have to wake up next morning to go to an important meeting? You're struggling to fall asleep, all these things. Uh, how the texture of the, I don't know, bed sheets, the pillow feel. How does the dog barking outside make you feel? Can you see, for example, the Vedanas? Oh, I wish that dog would just stop barking. What is that? That's one of the Vedanas. There is like and there's dislike. There's dislike first, and then you're liking the fact, the, the possibility of the dog stopping to bark. Ah. So when the mind is able to see this, to, to decipher through all of these different experiences, your life becomes meditation. And that is what we mean by having sati with you all along, wherever you go not treating meditation just as, as, again, a compartmentalized activity or something that you do at one part of your week. Because you're doing this for you to reduce the level of suffering. And the way to do that is by increasing your level of observation as to what is my contribution to whatever's being brought in by the Sixth Sense doors. So you're you're aware of what is genuinely taking place, what is happening now in the present moment. And also seeing your um, habitual tendencies towards, or sankharas, as Lord Buddha was mentioning it earlier, um, we stop being slaves to them, because most of the time we are slaves to our sankharas. So there's a lot going on. Even though we just say, when seeing a form, the eyes just see, and now you have the seeing consciousness. So there's a lot more going on. But just to take that, that can give us so much to probe and to see how it's all connected to either staying in ignorance or coming out of it with the help of the Dhamma by developing the 
the eyes to see what is being said here. And so thinking in that sense or applying reflection, uh, reflective processing, if you will, of, of seeing uh, what these perceptions are, these principles, allows the mind to remove the veil, at least one of them, not to be fooled anymore. So the magic show becomes less magical. Somebody switched on the lights in the, in the movie theater. So, and what Ananda is the perception of repulsiveness? This is Asubha. Here Ananda, the bhikkhu, carefully reviews and examines his physical body, seeing it wrapped up in this bag of skin, full of impurities within, while scanning it from the bottom of his feet, moving upwards, and then from the tips of his head hairs, scanning downwards as he reflects. By the way, here the words carefully reviewing, Pachavikkati um, is the Pali word for it. Um, and it's like continuously going back and forth, checking in, uh, looking at from different angles, if you will, or looking down upon something from the top, uh, almost like a bird's eye view of whatever it is that's taking place. In this case, it's the body. So from top to bottom, bottom up, you're checking the body to see what is it made out of? Earlier, I was mentioning about Venerable Girimananda in his previous life, 30,000 eons ago, when he had to cremate his family who were dead. Cremation, cremation grounds. People are very cautious about the subject of death and dead bodies, corpses. Um, it's too shocking. Why? It doesn't have to be a gruesome image necessarily, but just looking at an organ, at kidneys, for example, or as a, at a human heart. Many people cringe. I would cringe for you know years as a child. I would just, ugh. I remember when I was uh, injured, um, um, the doctors, because I had a shrapnel uh, lodged here in my temple, on my right temple, for years. It was there for seven years because they couldn't touch it because it was covered up with arteries, etc. Long story. But uh, they had taken x-rays of uh, my skull. And uh, my parents had uh, the folders, you know, those x-ray folders, um, I mean, or, or envelopes, yellow. They, they had them uh, up in, uh, in the closet somewhere. So I found out where they were, where it was. I was eight years old. And when no one was around in that room, I would sneak in and, and uh, cause I was not allowed to touch it because why? Because you have a, the, the, the image of a skull, the x-ray of a skull. And it could uh, ter be terrifying for a child, this and that, all that. So I remember how uh, I would take one, uh, you know, each one out at a time and look at my skull. And I would just be touching my head on, you know, over my skin, seeing, oh, wow, cheeks, is that okay? And then I would touch gently where the shrapnel was, you know, it's a steel piece of sharp shard of 
you know, metal. So that can be shocking, yeah. But it's also revealing. I mean, isn't that examining, investigating, scrutinizing this body, if you will, to see what's, am I, is it really a hand or can we look through this hand and see bones, ligaments, tendons, blood, blood vessels, fat? Where's the hand now? That's why Lord Buddha would always, always encourage his uh, meditators to look at the body in, in its different phases. I know in the uh, long uh, discourses in Diganikaya, you have extensive suttas where Lord Buddha goes step by step in the different phases of transformation of the body, the dead body, worm infested, bloating, uh, livid, black and blue, bluish, etc., uh, etc. Et Bones, scattered pieces of the body, etc. To be able to see the body in its different phases is a wonderful way to pull us out of our delusions. And some people might even have an issue with my usage of the word wonderful here, I know. But who cares? Um, anyhow, moving on. Uh, so basically, here uh, Lord Buddha is going to uh, list uh, the 32 parts of the body. So he says, as the bhikkhu reflects, in this body, there are to be found head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. Uh, by the way, these five, uh, they are given at the, um, near the end of the uh, Upasampada uh, ordination, full ordination of a bhikkhu by the preceptor or upajhaya as tools for meditation. Um, they're part of the kamatana. Um, and and um, so um, the preceptor encourages the bhikkhu now being ordained to they also ask the bhikkhu questions do you know these do you know how to practice them if they don't then the teacher's job is to remind them of the method of practice and um, they don't um, um, well, the bhikkhu is not expected at that point to do all the 32, but the five are pretty poignant. If you can get a handle on one of them is, is already quite powerful because they're, they just shaved your hair, let's say, if, it was, um, if the person is not coming from a samanera. So you, have, you, you still remember what your hair feels like in the palm of your hand. That's the head hair. So, also, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, the stomach with undigested food inside, <coughs> Excuse me. feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, snot, synovial fluid, and urine. In this manner, he sees the repulsiveness of this body. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of repulsiveness. Now, of course, uh, if you're going to be nitpicking, you can see that the body, in fact, has a lot more than 32 parts. But in those days, that's a nice 
bundle of obvious body parts that people would see at least in cremation grounds. Um, and they also had the old, old Ayurvedic system of uh, medicine. So uh, uh, they were quite advanced in India at that time. So these were very um, obvious parts of the body. So um, Ananda, this is what is meant by the, <coughs> excuse me, perception of repulsiveness, Ashwabha again. So the person here is reviewing the 32 parts, the constituents, uh, um, the constituents, uh, constituent parts of the body, that is. Uh, and this is why, I, one of the reasons why I like to think of the body as a portable object of meditation portable. You can carry it with you wherever you go. Even if your mind is going crazy, left and right, you're completely distraught, whatever. I mentioned the hand. Can you at least look at the hand, the back of the hand, the palm? If you carefully notice, let's say, the wrist, or even gently touch it with, you know, a finger, or you might even visually see how there is a pulsating action going on. The arteries, there's life there. So you're always using the body. Now, of course, in the case of a bhikkhu who has secluded oneself and is now probing deeper, um, they're going deeper and to break down the, um, well, to break down the body into its primary uh, four elements, which I think briefly we talked about. And uh, if you take the 32 parts of the body and juxtapose the four primary elements, the Chatu Maha uh, Dhatu, uh, you see that they actually fall into these four primary, if we have four columns, if, uh, you know, for example, these 32 parts, they will fall into um, these four elements, let's say. Again, um, it, um, we don't need to look at them as made up of the four elements, but the characteristics are extremely important for us to be taken into consideration when looking at the 32 parts. Is it fluidy? Is it liquidy? Um, okay, then we know that's the water element. Does it contain heat? Does it involve heat? Um, so blood uh, that we have can have several different uh, aspects of the four elements, let's say, right? So it is fluid, but at the same time, it is also warm. So you see the both elements. That's just an example. So um, in essence, basically, it, it's making it easier for the meditator to uh, look at the four elements through the 32 parts or the 32 parts through the four elements. Either way, it's, they are complementing each other to bring a sense of detachment uh, from being mesmerized with the body. And... Um, I smile rem uh, being reminded of modern day bhikkhus in some places, actually around the world, to be fair, where 
there is this fascination with uh, having a fit body. Bodybuilding. Bhikkhus. Lifting weights to look good. It doesn't work. It doesn't match. It has nothing. There is no Dhamma there. There is Adhamma there. The sense of ego. Look at me. I need to set myself apart from this whole group of other bhikkhus. So, um, as lay people, um, it is your job to actually, when you see something like this, to investigate, to probe, to understand, and to also allow yourself to claim something. If it doesn't agree with the with the Dhamma, meaning the suttas, or the Vinaya. That's why I try to give you as much of both uh, sources as possible to, you know, for the person to go ahead and when you see something that doesn't jive well, that, that, that's, that's, that's completely like wrong, to say it. Wrong in the sense of where does the repulsive play into this whole scheme of things that you got going over here? with your whole fitness routines. Even the food we eat as bhikkhus, we have to pause. And there's a chant we say to ourselves, for ourselves, to remind us that this is not for self-beautification. This is not for karma or pleasure seeking and craving this food. But this is simply to sustain this body, these 32 parts, so that I can actually do the work that I'm supposed to be doing, which is working on myself to actually get to Magga Pala Nibbana and to help others get there and taste the same fruits as I. That's why we go forth from home life into homelessness. So, and what Ananda is the perception of danger? Here, Ananda, the bhikkhu, having gone to the forest, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, reflects while being secluded from everyone. This body, <coughs> this body is a major source of suffering, possessing many dangers. Excuse me. <clears throat> many dangers. Numerous afflictions and pains arise because of this body, such as diseases having to do with sight, hearing, nose, tongue, body, the head, or the ears, mouth, teeth, lips, including <laughs> cough, by the way, <laughs> interesting, including cough, uh, asthma, inflammations of all sorts, boils, fevers, ulcers, stomach ache, loss of blood pressure and loss of consciousness, diarrhea and dysentery, pain in the gut, cholera, arthritis, leprosy, skin diseases, tuberculosis, smallpox, hemorrhoids, epilepsy, ringworm, uh, itching, scabies, tumors, <laughs> blood in the bile, diabetes, bed sores, bleeding, and ulcers of all kinds. By the way, uh, there's a few of these uh, that um, are very important uh, to be asked, um, again, during the Upasampada ceremony of ordination, higher ordination, where the bhikkhus 
will ask the candidate if, for example, they have leprosy or epilepsy, among others, uh, uh, like boils. Uh, if you have like some skin diseases or leprosy or epilepsy and things like that, uh, that completely bars you from becoming ordained uh, until, I guess, it's resolved. But uh, the candidate is asked, do you have this? Do you have that? Do you have this? So they ask about these illnesses, not all of them, but just a few that I mentioned, um, some of them I, I mentioned. Um, in addition, there are painful experiences that result from disorders of bile, phlegm, gas, or disorders on account of all three. Disorders on account of the change of seasons, on account of doing unusual work or overexhaustion. Sudden attacks of pain, disorders born of the results of past actions, disorders caused by the cold, heat, hunger, thirst, urinating, and defecating. That pretty much covers the whole gamut, doesn't it? Um, in this manner, he lives constantly seeing these dangers that originate because of this body. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of danger. So, it is interesting how Lord Buddha chose to use this principle or this perception for Venerable Girimananda right after him covering the 32 parts. So you see, they go very much hand in hand. So when there is too much attention being placed on beautifying oneself or going after something beautiful for the body, when the person is already reflecting and reviewing, going back and forth on these things, automatically it creates what? Well, what is to come next? The sense of, removing and pahana it's called and then also the nibbida um, or the disenchantment that follows and this is sometimes a difficult pill to swallow for some people who have been meditating for some time but then when the talk or the mention comes up of, of the word nibbida or disenchantment or dispassion some people are jolted by that despite the fact that they've been meditating for some time or been listening or lis reading the Dhamma. That shows that there's been wrong view somewhere because what I'm referring to is um, there are many people who um, want to, <laughs> well, they want the cake and they want to they have the cake and they want to eat it too, as, as they say. Well, what that means here in this case is they want to get to see how the mind is uh, relating with the world, especially if through the three characteristics, anicca, impermanence, suffering, and non-substantiality. But even though they want to have these um, insights into the nature of things, Yet there's this longing to still maintain pleasure-seeking. They don't want to get disenchanted. They want to have the passion. So this passion, the word viraga, or asuba, like the repulsive, for them it's, it, it, it's 
it puts them off, it, it, it pulls them away. And it doesn't, sometimes people leave the cushion for months or even years. And sometimes they never return simply because of the longing to not be the mirror to reflect what is happening, but to really embrace it, to become identified with it. So we need to know when we're studying the Dhamma as to why. If you're taking a freeway or a road to go somewhere or a road that every road takes you somewhere, we need to know where it is taking us, this path, this road, this magga that Lord Buddha talks about. Where do the Eightfold Path sections, or does the Eightfold Path take us to? I think everyone owes it for, to themselves to really know that. And hopefully these uh, sutta discussions, explorations uh, are helping listeners. And what ananda is the perception of abandoning or removing? <coughs> Here, ananda, the bhikkhu, does not tolerate the presence of any arisen sensual thoughts as he quickly abandons and gets rid of them, pulling himself away from them while obliterating them. He does not tolerate the presence of any arisen angry thoughts as he quickly abandons and gets rid of them, pulling himself away from them while obliterating them. He does not tolerate the presence of any arisen harmful thoughts as he quickly abandons and gets rid of them, pulling himself away from them while obliterating them. He does not tolerate the presence of any arisen unwholesome states as he quickly abandons and gets rid of them, pulling himself away while obliterating them. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of abandonment or abandoning or removing. Um, here the word is pahana sanya, which is uh, removal, um, abandoning something. Um, and um, it, it has this active role to it. Uh, it's not a passive uh, term. It's not a passive uh, verb. Um, but what is it that is being removed? Well, the, the bhikkhu here is not no longer tolerating uh, any sensual thoughts, any harmful thoughts, any unwholesome thoughts, etc. During the day or at night, we often come across, uh, or, or the mind is nonstop, right? It's, it's always thinking, most uh, minds. Um, um, I think I once shared with you how I once read a research paper on how many thoughts people have. <laughs> um, it was many years ago, so I don't know uh, if somebody uh, came up with a new research, but basically they came with the number, came out with the number of 65,000 thoughts are thought in an average human being, adult human being. Um, and uh, over 90% um, of those thoughts are negative in nature. And they also looked at the plausibility of those negative thoughts, if they would come true, and they realized that over 93% of those actually are impossible to happen. 
so those can actually be termed in Buddhist terms as unwholesome, akusala. Now, anytime you're having a thought, even though this is especially in relation to the sila, precepts practice, sometimes we say to ourselves, oh, well, I didn't technically break a precept. I didn't say what I was thinking of wanting to say. I didn't do what I thought I could do, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But were you dwelling on it? Were you thinking about it, etc.? Here, the mind has developed to such a point where they are practicing pan, uh, pahana. So they're aware of the removal principle. They have an appreciation of the role of removing, of abandoning. So the moment they spot, the moment the mind with sati sees that there is a deviation. Mentally, the precept is being broken. So the person immediately puts a full stop and completely changes their, their, their trajectory. Do a 180-degree turn. Because they realize no one's seeing them. No one's watching them. There's no way that they're going to be caught, as it were. But they themselves feel and know for sure what was happening in the mind. And this takes the person to eventually to Adisila. That's why the Sila is not just to be looked at on a superficial level, I keep repeating. It's not just, yeah, look, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not doing this. That's good. I'm not doing this Akusala act. That's very good. But where does the mind fall into that? Is there the mental kamma of this, the equivalent of the physical action that didn't get committed, that didn't, did, uh, yeah, you didn't engage in it, but mentally, are you engaging with it? That is not tolerated immediately. So the moment the mind sees that that's what's taking place, you, you completely drop anchor, you stop everything. You stop the thought from progressing any further. And the more we do that, the more we become able to control what's happening in the mind. And that is what I mentioned sometimes, how even in sleep, one gets to a point where sila is being kept. Physically, you're not doing anything, of course. You're asleep. The mind, however, is maintaining your accountability, if you will. Your genuineness, your adherence to sila, to living with virtuous behavior, even in sleep. This is when you know that you are now within the territory of adisila, higher, higher virtue. We have sila, samadhi, panya. Yes, the three trainings, but Lord Buddha also listed for the developing students, the advancing students, adi sila, higher sila, adi citta, and adi panya. This today is not being talked uh, about at least enough. I know um 
the late Arahants of the 20th century, Webu Sayadaw, Ajahn Man, um, um, they were big proponents of the higher training. And when you look at the suttas, they're all there. They're not hidden somewhere. These are not secret teachings. Please remember, this is plainly there available for us to follow. So ultimately, because um, the removal is there not just to have control, mind you, it is there for us to, the more we do that, the more we are able to stop them short, these akusala, acts, thoughts, words, what you're doing is you're limiting the possibility for the asavas to manifest. The asavas or the mental contaminants don't just disappear on their own suddenly. It takes a while. It takes a while, meaning the person is working on the minimization of occurrence of any of these, let's say, uh, tendencies, uh, unwholesome thoughts, harmful thoughts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. because ultimately that's where the asavas are coming from. The mental contaminants of kamasava, the desire, longing. Then you have the bhavasava, the longing to be, to exist, to move to the next best thing, the other, and then avijasava, the asava or the mental contaminant of ignorance. So, next we get to dispassion. So, and what ananda is the perception of dispassion? Here, Ananda, the bhikkhu, having gone to the forest, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, reflects while being secluded from everyone. This is peaceful. This is sublime, namely, the stilling of all habitual tendencies, sankhara, the relinquishment of all attachment, attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, nibbana. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of this passion. Um, should I read the cessation? Um, when we're looking at perceptions or concepts or um, the conceptual approach, um, we are working to have those drop where we're just drifting in concepts, where we, we are relying on concepts for our understanding. In uh, Buddhist circles, uh, commentator, commentators, uh, etc., uh, and even meditation teachers uh, talk about um, uh, panyati or, or um, concepts, concepts, and, um, and oftentimes, as, as human beings, we develop this attachment to concepts. The Dhamma, that's why, one of the reasons why I keep saying, the Dhamma also can become a, a hindrance. I mean, come on, it's a Dhamma, how can it be a hindrance? That itself, attaching ourselves to it, can become a major obstacles, obstacle for us to grow further because we stop scrutinizing our approach. It's not the Dhamma, of course. It's our approach. 
we're holding on to something and we're no longer reflecting like the mirror. So that is one of the reasons why uh, we need to have uh, the mind going deeper into wise stillness. And the action portion of that, the thing which gets us to that wise stillness, is the combination of those two things, sati and sampajanya. Mindful and clearly knowing where you are at. What is the position, the situation of your mind, of your body? Are you aware of how your hands are placed? Where are they placed? Are they touching anything? Most of the time we walk around almost flailing our arms, our limbs. And the mind, forget about it. The mind is already all over the place. So when the person is saying this is sublime, this is peaceful, this is the stilling of all sankharas, the mind has already reached that wise, still state of the mind. But it takes work. Now, concepts, of course, are not some things that we need to destroy. We're not, you know, looking at them as our enemies. Concepts are just concepts. Panyati, they're, they're just there. So we can use them. And it's in the using that um, oftentimes we run into some problems because the concept is not, the concepts themselves are not the issue. It's how we are using them. And that's one of the reasons why I always say, please do not go and constantly engage in Dhamma discussions all the time. All the time. A couple of years ago, I had some students who had the wonderful idea of, of uh, starting a, a um, group chat uh, on this app. Um, and I said, sure. I mean, what is the nature of the conversation that's going to take place? And they said, Bhante, we're going to be talking about Dhamma. Any questions about the practice, this and that? And I said, perfect. Uh, any questions on the suttas? I said, fine. Um, because they were going to do it under, I guess, auspices of Bhikkhu Chandana or something. So they asked me and I said, that's my thought. Uh, those are my thoughts on the matter. And then I saw how that had become like a huddling, uh, like a watering hole for a lot of attention to be absorbed into. That is Ioni Somanasikara. But it was all done under the umbrella of Dhamma, one may argue. Yes. So one of the questions I asked to the group, uh, I said, how much time are you guys spending on meditating on these things that you guys are talking about? This sharing of ideas and talking on the Dhamma, about the Dhamma, even though it's extremely important, but it has a small part to play in the grand scheme of things. The grand scheme of things meaning your practice. That's one of the reasons why uh, Lord Buddha would encourage individuals to come together once a week to talk about the Dhamma. Once a week. And for that, we have 
beautiful suttas. Uh, one that comes to mind is with Venerable Anuruddha, Kim, Venerable Kimbila, Venerable Nandiya, when they were living together in a small hermitage in a, in a park somewhere in India. And they were quiet. If they really needed to communicate something's going on, they would gesture by hand, by, with, with their faces, etc. But no talking. And once every five days, in fact, they would come together and discuss the Dhamma. Imagine the quality of the conversation. Otherwise, it's, if you keep talking and talking, it's just, you know, is there substance? Is it backed up by practice? And what Ananda is the perception of cessation? Here Ananda, the bhikkhu, having gone to the forest, to the root of a tree or to an empty dwelling, reflects while being secluded from everyone. This is peaceful. This is excellent. Namely, the stilling of all habitual tendencies, the relinquishment of all attachments, the destruction of craving, cessation, nibbana. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of cessation. Uh, and if you notice, they come right one after the other. In other uh, structures that we've seen in the Pachalayamana Sutta, in the Anapana Sati Sutta, and in this Sutta, Girimananda Sutta, among many, many others, when you see the, the, the practice or the realization in this case of dispassion or the step of dispassion, it precedes usually the cessation step or the stage of cessation. So here we see that same formulaic um, structure. <coughs> and what Ananda is the perception of disenchantment towards all things belonging to the world? Here Ananda, the bhikkhu lives as he refrains from grasping onto anything, giving up all mental standpoints and fixations pertaining to all things, calming the latent tendencies, Anusaya, within himself as he becomes disenchanted and releases their grip on the heart. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of disenchantment towards all things belonging to the world. Here, the Pali word is anabhirata, which is the same almost as, as uh, nibbida, which we talked about briefly earlier. So the term is disenchantment towards the world. So you're constantly checking to see how strong of a grip does the world have on you. Slowly, slowly, you're removing that finger by finger, if you will, from its tight, tight grip that it has on us. Uh, it could be family. It could be food. It could be one's own ideals, uh, mental fixations, as Lord Buddha is mentioning here. It could be uh, anything, ideas. Um, um, any position that you find to be completely glued to, cemented to, um, is coming off. Um, that's why we have disenchantment happen. Um, and this is one of the reasons why if and when a person is experiencing these things, and they go back to their uh, familiar uh, or people that they grew up with, whether it's their neighborhood or their families or friends or colleagues, that's not necessarily going to sit well for, uh, with them. 
because your disenchantment will be seen as odd to say the least. Of course, they have to translate what they're now seeing with their own worldviews and paradigms or narratives as to who you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be. So uh, one has to even be detached from that, disenchanted from others' reactions, even one's own loved ones, relatives, friends. Because this is what we mean by personality development. It cannot happen. Personality development cannot happen without disenchantment and dispassion taking place in the heart. You're not developing some psychic skills and we're calling that personality development. Absolutely not. This is alchemy, truest sense of alchemy taking place. The lead has or is turning into 24 karat gold. And the gold is you. Many people who saw you as nothing more than a piece of lead are not going to like that, or they're going to have a hard time negotiating that reality. Uh, and what, Ananda, is the perception of the impermanence of all habitual tendencies? Here, Ananda, the bhikkhu is repulsed, embarrassed, and disgusted by all the habitual tendencies that may still linger within the heart. Ananda, this is what is meant by the perception of the impermanence of all habitual tendencies. So if the person is or has had addictions, and we've all, we all have, if we're not awakened, we're, we have some addiction in my, the way I see it. Um, so um, when the addictive pattern of, let's say, having harmful thoughts comes in into your awareness, suddenly you feel disgusted by it. You don't brush it off. You don't say, oh, I shouldn't have these thoughts. Well, you didn't remove them. You didn't go after them trying to get rid of them. And they definitely didn't leave a mark of embarrassment on you. You didn't feel necessarily disgusted. In this sense, it's very important for us to also be repulsed, have asubha, sense of disgust towards the negative habitual patterns or tendencies, meaning the sankharas. Instead of just waiting for the sankharas to one day just vaporize on their own, that's not going to happen. That's why we practice sila. That's why it is a must for us to take our sila into adisila, uh, which I was referring to earlier. <laughs> um, so, and next we're going to get to the anapanasati section, which, by the way, it just stands out on its own. <laughs> it doesn't uh, get any, uh, the title of sanya, of anapanasati, of course, as in uh, the others, all nine of them, because this is Book of the Ten, so whatever we're reading or going through has to have the number 10 involving it. Uh, so here we have 10 principles. The 10th one is the Anapanasati. The nine were perceptions, so they're recognized as such. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention that in case you noticed. Um, and I'll go through this very quickly because we've already dedicated uh, a big chunk of time to um, Anapanasati in the past. 
and uh, listeners could go and check those recordings. <coughs> and what ananda is mindfulness of the in and out breathing? Here, Ananda, the bhikkhu, by going to the forest or sitting at the root of a tree or in an empty dwelling, folds his legs together, keeping his body straight, and brings his awareness inwards and rests it upon the breath as it flows in and out. Thus, he mindfully breathes in and mindfully breathes out. While breathing in long, he knows I breathe in, I'm, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. By training himself with the breath further, he pays attention to the whole body of the breath from the beginning to end as he experiences it flowing inward. Training further, he pays attention to the whole body of the breath from beginning to end as he experiences it flowing outward, exhalation. So beginning, middle, and end portion, that's the whole body of the breath. Further, while breathing in, he settles down the breath's movement within the physical body. That's the kaya sankara, the movement of the breath within the body. So he's settling it down. He's relaxing the body observing while observing the breath. So while breathing out too, he settles down the breath's movement within the physical body. By the way, there is no labeling. Uh, I know um, I used to practice this for years, and um, um, and uh, there's been traditions uh, primarily out of uh, Burma um, um, where we have labeling, labeling, or noting, noting, noting. So if you're walking, you say mentally, walking, 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 breathing, 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 um, pulling, 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 pushing, pushing, pu etc., that is labeling, and that doesn't have much to do with the practice. The key thing to remember is here to know, just to know. Am I pushing? Am I pulling? Am I breathing in long? Am I breathing out short? Etc. So that, uh, the labeling part was uh, a much later addition, and thanks to the commentators, of course. Um, so... Um, there's nowhere in the suttas that you see, I've never come across any where there is um, importance laid or even a mention of note, note, always label, label, because that's adding more work for the mind, unnecessary, redundant, because we already know if I'm sipping, 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 if I'm moving, moving, moving something. Um, and here we can remember again, Bahia Sutta, where Lord Buddha was instructing him when seeing Bahia, just see like a mirror. You're not saying, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm hearing. No. You know that there's a sound coming. Now, I also understand why the commentators might have used the labeling part because it detaches you from adding or falling into the storyline. And that is important, yes. But you can do that without the labeling part. Meaning, if you're hearing a sound, you're not going out to the sound to examine its features, to add layers, flesh it out, to add, oh, this is my neighbor's voice. Oh, he's talking over the phone with someone. Wait a minute. Oh, he's talking to his son overseas. 
<laughs> we're gone off the reservation. That's not hearing anymore. The sound. You are gone and sucked into the wormhole of the story. You're gone into the deep end of signs and features. That is not sati or satipatthana. That's not that. That's not the practice. We need to know what is taking place without the need for us to use any extra cognitive crutches, for example, or stories to be added, meaning papanchas, mental proliferations to be added. We don't need to do any of that because the eyes are picking up a lot of information. I can see the thing. I don't need to add anything because adding involves desires, especially adding involves craving, subtracting the same thing. Basically, we're talking about the two different types of feeling, right? Pleasurable and painful. I'm subtracting things that I don't want. Oh, the sound in the morning was just beautiful with just a few birds. But then I hear this rooster come on or the, the, the dogs. Ah, oh, that messed up the whole scene for me. So now I'm no longer hearing or listening. Because now I'm completely separated from the fresh genuineness of the true experience as it is playing out. So we need to have the absence of mental verbalization. The, the narrative, the chit-chat, the monologue that keeps going on. So um, when you're practicing satipatthana, you are actually knowing without the usage of words, whether vocal or sub-vocal. Sub-vocal means mentally saying it. Walking, 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 walking. No, no. That just deviates you from the practice. We're simply going to be conscious of what is taking place. That's Yatabhutang Pajanati. As it is, as the case is with um, well, as the case is with the, with the next uh, tetrad that's coming up, we're looking at what is happening to the mind. What is happening to the mind, especially when we're going into the, the jhanas in this case. Now we're on steps five to eight, uh, the second tetrad of the Anapanasati. Remember, it has 16 steps or four tetrads. Training himself further while breathing in, he is sensitive to experiencing joy. And while breathing out too, he is sensitive to experiencing joy. Training himself further while breathing in, he is sensitive to experiencing gladness. And while breathing out too, he is sensitive to experiencing gladness. So you're feeling completely tranquil. Training himself further, while breathing in, he becomes sensitive to his thoughts and feelings. And while breathing out too, he becomes sensitive to his thoughts and feelings. And here, thoughts and feelings, we're talking about the chitta sankharas, the mind uh, or mental habitual tendencies or mental formations. Uh, other uh, translators uh, have used a lot. Training himself. So now you're sensitive to, you know, the chitta sankara, you know their presence, 
you know if there's conceptual uh, fabrications going on, and you know you're, you're very alert to the feelings portion, maybe the goosebumps that are happening, the goose flesh that are happening because of the jonic factors, like joy. So now, in the, in the last portion of the second tetrad, we see Lord Buddha saying, training himself further, while breathing in, he quiets down his thoughts and feelings, even those, bringing them to complete stillness. And while breathing out too, he continues quieting down his thoughts and feelings, bringing them to complete stillness, because you're moving now to uh, equanimity, to upekha. And while we're having upekha, uh, at that level, which means we're on the fourth jhana, uh, then it means uh, there isn't that connection or like goose bump, uh, bumps or goose flesh uh, uh, that we're aware of. So there isn't that taking place any further because you calm the mind down to such a level of stillness. Um, so training himself further, now we're in the third tetrad, while breathing in, he is sensitive to the heart and while breathing out to he is sensitive to the heart. Last uh, time I was mentioning it, the mind. Um, but I feel much more comfortable in using the word heart here. And now heart is not the physical organ that we have near the center of the chest. The Lord Buddha is talking about uh, chitta or cheto. Uh, and he has a wonderful term uh, that he uses for awakening. Uh, among many, many, many uh, phrases that he's used, uh, um, the one that's close to my heart, heart again, is um, the unshakable release or liberation of the heart, or the imperturbable serenity of the of the heart. Um, and so, mind, when it has feeling tones to it, if you will, when we're talking about the intuition, intuitive mind. Uh, we don't necessarily see the word mano used, which is used elsewhere, but not when it comes to this sutta and many other suttas. When Lord Buddha is referring to the heart-mind, if you will. And let's not forget there are many thousands of neurons in and around the heart. So that's a, that was a lovely discovery uh, that science um, brings to us. Training himself further, while breathing in, he gladdens the heart. And while breathing out, too, he continues gladdening the heart. So you're basically settling the mind more and more and more and more. Because you're taking the mind uh, and you're fluctuating between samatha and vipassana at this point, of course. But that's going to change when we get to the fourth tetrad, which is exclusively dedicated to vipassana. Training himself further, he breathes in while stabilizing the heart in samadhi, steadying it. And while breathing out too, he continues stabilizing the heart in samadhi, steadying it. Training himself further, he breathes in while releasing the heart, liberating the heart or liberating the mind, if you will. And while breathing out too, he continues releasing the heart. Um, also, something to take note of is that many commentators, or at least some of them, have uh, concluded that the anapanasati practice is especially useful for 
those who are more inclined towards being like intellectual types, if you will, um, who like to analyze, um, love, uh, have a love affair with argumentation and things like that. So Anapanasati can slowly, slowly, as you notice, how there is less and less reliance and pulling away from the chitta sankharas. Well, that's where you have all the thoughts. But we're walking away from thoughts and feelings. Now, what do we have left for us to argue about? Nothing, because all you have now is the breath going in and coming out. So for that reason, uh, um, I don't know if this is true. I haven't read it anywhere in the suttas. I heard once from one teacher years ago um, uh, where uh, they said something along the lines of, the Buddha never uh, debated with anyone. He never cared for debating. And oftentimes he would turn them away. Rarely you see debates happen. But um, compared to the hundreds of thousands of encounters he'd had with listeners. But that, what they were saying was this. Um, one time, uh, some very well-known philosopher, uh, somebody who's a master at rhetoric and, and argumentation, shows up and says, I'm here to debate with you, Gautama. And Lord Buddha points to one of the trees and he says, go and sit there and watch your breath for a few months, then I'll debate with you. Because the man, the person is so arrogant and so full of conceit, and he's thinking that he's the best in India, and India had some of the best, if not the best philosophers in ancient times, uh, he goes and sits there for a few months. And uh, at, well, actually before he sits there, he looks over and he recognizes another uh, very well-known once upon a time philosopher, friend of his, and that person opens his eyes and starts smiling at him. This philosopher was about to go and sit under the tree, waiting for his time to debate. And he says, why are you smiling? And he says, you'll know. I also came to debate. And now I'm a bhikkhu in this sasana. Why? Because the person has walked away from being lost, being a captive to one's own papanchas. Remember, concepts inevitably take us to papanchas, so long as the mind is not liberated. There's no ifs and buts about that either. So using the breath is wonderful because it can bring the person back to the body. And the body has so much to teach us. So many of these principles that we covered today deal with the body, right? The repulsive, seeing anicca even, suffering, um, and also the 32 parts of the body, all these. So um, we're looking to experience the Dhamma through direct experience. And that is only done by the individual. And uh, it's very much like eating or taking medicine. Uh, no one can take medicine for us and help us be cured. Similarly, no one can satiate our hunger by them eating and us still starving. So um, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's so hard for so many people to just follow some routines and, and, and taste the Dhamma. 
And that's another reason why Lord Buddha hesitated to teach when he became uh, Samma Sambuddha, a fully self-awakened Buddha. He saw the Dhamma and he said, this is too much for most people to understand. Because everybody's a believer, everybody's a follower, everybody is, well, people are not curious enough to probe, to understand, to question, to question. Now today in the world, we have forgotten that art. Healthy questioning is, is, is wonderful. It tells us where our feet are, for one, where we stand, and especially where we stand in the Dhamma. And debating is never going to get us to the Dhamma. Argumentation is never going to get us to the Dhamma. So, it can only be known by us and, and through direct experience, basically. That's why we have the wonderful term for the Dhamma at the end of the, the qualifiers for the Dhamma, when we say ETP, so, etc. For the Dhamma, we have at the end, Pachatang Veditabo Vinyuhi, to be realized, to be experienced by the wise for themselves. That's who the Dhamma is for. Dhamma is not for everyone. So, uh, and we don't need to dumb down the Dhamma in order for it to be palatable for everyone. Such modes of, you know, integration, this and that, have nothing to do with keeping the Dhamma authentic. It's selling out. And many teachers out there are just doing that. And they've been doing that for decades. So, but that's doing so much disservice to the Dhamma. And by you uh, being or exposing yourselves to the Dhamma through practice and through proper going back to the Pali Nikayas, the suttas, you're actually counteracting that. So just a few words for me to share with you. So uh, um, now Ananda, if you go and instruct, and this is where Lord Buddha is, uh, has ended because he just finished the, um, did I mention the, Oh, I don't think I mentioned the fourth tetrad. Sorry about that. Training himself further, he breathes in while experiencing and seeing impermanence. And while breathing out too, he continues experiencing and seeing impermanence. Training, tra training himself further, he breathes in while experiencing and seeing dispassion. And while breathing out too, he continues experiencing and seeing dispassion. Uh, dispassion or detachment. Uh, the term is viraga. Both of them work. I know Bhante Nyanananda likes to use uh, detachment. Uh, I, I have an affinity with dispassion because raga is passion, um, lust. So uh, training himself further, he breathes in while experiencing cessation. And while breathing out too, he continues experiencing cessation. Training himself further, he breathes in while experiencing relinquishment as he keeps giving up. And while breathing out too, he continues experiencing relinquishment as he keeps giving up. This last tetrad, the four steps of it, are exclusively taking place with the help of pure vipassana. Because we've been working on 
purifying, calming, stilling the mind enough so that now it's so sharp that it can penetrate through and see anicca for what it is. Not a concept, not a concept, but it is in your DNA. You know it, you see it. No convincing involved. The same with dispassion, the same with cessation, and definitely the same with patinisagga, which is the giving up. Uh, so this Dhamma is difficult to see, um, and it can only be done through direct experience. Of whom? The person doing it. And it requires doing. Yes, we are uh, also uh, human beings. Last week I was talking about stop, you know, pushing ourselves, moving away from performance mode. That's not what I'm referring to by doing here. It takes work. It takes work, it takes patience, perseverance for you to even sit through these uh, series of sutta explorations. To even sit for five minutes meditation or to even be mindful for one millisecond in your day. That is simply being done because of you deciding to dedicate that. And this path is all about dedication. All about dedication. If the mundane world, if it wants to give, a, if it gives us something, an accolade, a, a reward, a, an achievement, a, some type of a accomplishment, it demands that we put in effort. It demands, and it is brutal and ruthless at times in its demand list. And that's just the mundane, though. How much more with the sublime? that the Dhamma is and is offering us. So, Ananda, this is what is meant by mindfulness of the in and out breathing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, um, by the way, just like in the case of the some Bojhangas or Satta Bojhangas, where we have uh, several instances where Lord Buddha, Venerable Mahakasapa, Venerable Mahamogalana were sick at different times in different suttas. And um, Lord Buddha goes to those two disciples and he reminds them, recites to them, asks them questions pertaining to the Bojangas. And at the end of that teaching, they get better immediately, including one time Lord Buddha himself was sick. And I believe it was Venerable Chunda who Lord Buddha calls him over and says, Chunda, come here. Uh, recite to me the seven factors of awakening. This is the Buddha, the king of the Dhamma, lord of the Dhamma, the one who gave us the Dhamma, the, the one who gave us the Bojangas. He is now asking a bhikkhu to come and recite the Bojangas to him. And he listens and he hears smilingly and suddenly Lord Buddha standing up, he's all better, able to walk around and eat again. That's how powerful the Dhamma is, if the heart is open to listen. Now, Ananda, if you go and instruct the bhikkhu Girima Ananda on these 10 perceptions, then on hearing these 10 perceptions, it is possible that Girima Ananda bhikkhu's illness would immediately dissipate. Then the Venerable Ananda, having heard and learned these 10 perceptions from the Blessed One's own lips, went to the Venerable Girima Ananda and instructed him on these 10 perceptions. 
And as the Venerable Girimananda heard these 10 perceptions being spoken to him thus, his illness immediately dissipated. Nice. Uh, here I'd like to share uh, from Venerable Girimananda's other Theragata verses, um, and which have to do with his uh, kuti, his dwelling that uh, the King Bimbisara, King Bimbisara had, had provided for him. And this is just a few verses, and I'm going to read them. Um, they're verses 30, 325 to 329. Um, this is him, Venerable Girimananda. The rains fall like a sweet song. My little hut is roofed, pleasant. I'm sheltered in it. Peacefully I reside within it, meditating. So rain down, sky, if you will. He's no longer outside, remember? He's now being sheltered. He's not in the open air. The next verse. The rains fall like a sweet song. My little hut is roofed, pleasant, protected from the elements. With peaceful mind, Santa Chitta, I reside within it, meditating. So rain down, sky, if you will. The rains fall like a sweet song. My little hut is roofed, pleasant, sheltered from the weather outside, rid of desire. Vita Lobha, I reside within it, meditating. So rain down, sky, if you will. The rains fall like a sweet song. My little hut is roofed, pleasant, sheltered from all that's outside. Rid of hate, I dwell, reside, I, 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 I reside within it, meditating. So rain down, sky, if you will. The rains fall like a sweet song. My little hut is roofed. Pleasant, sheltered inside, rid of delusion, I reside within it, meditating. So rain down, sky, if you will. So that's not part of the sutta. I just wanted to share those verses with you of the Venerable, uh, seeing that he became well after hearing the Lord Buddha's words. And the sutta finishes here with the following words. It was therefore in this manner that the Venerable Girimananda fully recovered from his affliction. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So that is the sutta. And I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I will pause here and um, see if there are any questions pertaining uh, to your practice, to the Dhamma. Any comments, etc. <laughs> it is a sutta that is not often um, explored, uh, at least in the West. It is part of the Paritta chants that uh, we do. Uh, Parittas are the protective chants that you normally would see uh, at Buddhist temples. But often, most people have no um, connection in their mind as to who Venerable Girimananda is and was, what was the story. And it just says that it is good for uh, removal of disease or, or um, illnesses. But it's good to actually now see it within a context, 
see how you know powerful it is. Well, if um, it seems like there's no, there are no questions. Uh, if there are, uh, that uh, if you have questions uh, that you want to present it in a private setting, way, please uh, uh, do send them my way, and I'll do my best to respond. Um, and uh, oh, uh, on a side note, I was able to finally. Uh, uh, finish narrating and then uh, recording and then um, uploading it um, to YouTube. Uh, the audiobook of my um, audio version of the book, uh, a book that I had written a few years ago um, on uh, Buddhist mindful my meditation and lifestyle, a return to the source. I had to revise and update it because I discovered some errors, some some. Um, typos and things like that, which um, I fixed it while I was narrating it. Um, I didn't realize it was going to come out to be seven and a half hours. So it's there. Um, please, if you have a difficulty reading, I know it's difficult with many of your schedules. The reason, one of the reasons is for you to be able to listen to it instead of having to go through the pages. And um, so that can also be helpful to your practice. So that's uploaded now as well. So, <laughs> um, sorry. Next week, we'll resume our sitting, the two-hour sitting. And uh, I believe the follow the next sutta, which is to come in two weeks, will be Saupadisesa uh, Sutta. Uh, so with residues remaining. Um, that's the title, I think. Um, Damadina will, will, once I send it to her, she'll provide you with uh, the attachment of the sutta. So let us share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share in these merits. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sad, sad, sad. Be well. Practice, practice. Do it, don't try. Bring urgency. Bring urgency. If something was caught in your eye, it demands your urgency. You don't waste time. You do your best to remove it. Everything else becomes secondary. Fortunately for us, we don't have to make everything secondary if we're engaged in life when we're doing work with the Dhamma. All we need to bring in is the sense of urgency to be present. <coughs> That's urgency. You can maintain your lifestyle, busy lifestyle, whatever you're doing, while your heart is beating with the Dhamma. That is where the deathless resides. That is also where the kileshas reside, defilements. 
But that is also where Nibbana will take place in the mind. But it takes work. So may your work produce fruits whereby you find yourself becoming more and more like the mirror, smiling back. So be well, and I'll see you next week. Blessings of the Triple Gem be upon you and your loved ones. Sukihoto. <laughs>